Hello, welcome to the first episode of Old Hollywood New Obsession. And so this first episode is about Joan Crawford. I thought I would start with her because she is just the epitome of the Old Hollywood star. So I just have a bit of her bio first. Her She was named Lucille Lucer and she was born in San Antonio, Texas. And what was really interesting when I was researching her um, early life was that she had no birth certificate. So she's not even sure of her own birthday. So they know the date of her birthday is March 23rd, but no one's sure of the exact year of her birthday. Her birth year is thought to be between 1904 and 1908. So it's not on... When I was researching, because I thought it was so strange to not know, like, when your birthday is, like, your birth year... But it wasn't uncommon. So when I did some research into the American birth certificate system, um, the, what came out was that it's not wasn't st- standardized until 1902, and it wasn't across all of the American states until the 1930s. So Texas's Texas Texas's birth records were not kept until 1903. So she was just right on the cusp of when birth certificates were becoming the standard. So it does kind of make sense, like. It's not completely wild that she doesn't know when her birth year was. She says her birthday is 1908. Um, Her older brother Harold was born in 1904. So she was born between 1904 and 1908. She died in 1977. So it would have made her 69 when she passed away, going off the 1908 birth year. So Joan was one of the biggest actresses of the 1930s. She became famous by entering dancing competitions during the 1920s, so being like a flapper and entering like the Charleston competitions and dance competitions. And she was um, the, the most well-known image of the flapper, like almost like a flapper girl boss of like the 1920s. And F. Scott Fitzgerald's quoted as saying she was the epitome of the flapper girls. So um, by the end of the 1920s, she had gotten a movie contract with MGM and in the 1930s she was extremely famous and like the most beautiful considered the most beautiful woman of the world um and so she played hard-working like modern women and she played you know rags to riches type women strong women and it was really popular with women and really popular during the 19th the time of the 1930s they often tried to put her in um, like period roles, but it just like didn't take because she was just had such a modern personality and screen presence. Um, towards the end of the 1930s, her movie started to lose money, like not not even really lose money, just like not making as much profits. And she was part of that really awful box office poison campaign that Catherine Hepburn was also a part of and so she um, was really losing her popularity by the end of the 1930s. She had a two-year absence from the screen. Um, She left MGM and went to Warner Brothers and because she had creative control at Warner Brothers over what scripts she was doing, she um, didn't make films for two years and then Jack Warner was like, hey, you, you need to make a movie for us. Like, what is going on? And she was like, yeah, that's fair. So she did start to make more films for Warner Brothers. Um, she really wanted to do the part of Mildred Pierce in the 1945 make, remake of the novel. 
and she ended up doing a screen test for this, which was, she, you know, was a big kind of professional step for her. Like she was not used to doing screen tests. It was almost like until that point she didn't have to. So she was really passionate about this part of Mildred Pierce. And she won the Academy Award for Best Actress. She didn't appear on the night that she won. She was sick. And so they brought it to her her home and she was um, she got the award at her house, which really kind of just, you know, made her even more popular, made her moment in the like the Academy Sun shine for longer because she essentially got it twice. And um, so in 1955, she kind of stepped away from filming because she met Alfred Steele, who was the company president of Pepsi Cola. And so she kind of just spent the end the remainder of his life with him so doing like press tours like being, being kind of like the face of pepsi like i just love that and he died in 1959 and he um didn't have as much money as she thought so she thought she was finally secure because she'd risen up from poverty and was you know always hustling and working and she thought that she could finally relax because you know you'd think marrying the president of Pepsi Cola he's gonna have some cash but he was actually in lots of debt and um, a bit of the research I did said that a lot of the debt came from this renovation of this amazing apartment they had in New York and um, that it was all about like having that look of being like super rich Pepsi CEO and you know, Hollywood star of the century, Joan Crawford. But um, when he died, she realized that he actually owed money to Pepsi Cola. And so she continued to like work on the board. They were quite surprised um, that she still wanted to be a part of it. Um, but she re- they forced her to retire in 1973. So she did continue to work for Pepsi Cola for like 14 years. I just love that for her. Um, she worked a lot through like when her career dropped off in the night, like when she married Alfred Steele, she did try to go back to work after he died. And if you've seen the TV show Feud, um, I know it's not completely historically accurate. I just really love that show. And it's a really um, cool representation of like her later life. Um, so she obviously was in like the incredible um, whatever happened to baby Jane really was kind of like the main driving force of that film getting made. Um, and that came out in 1962, I think. I have to double check that. Um, and she would just get a couple of like other kind of B movies, kind of very camp movies. And then um, when her eldest daughter, Christina, was in a, uh, a soap opera in the 70s, she her daughter got sick and then she decided Joan decided to like play her daughter's character and apparently the ratings were like off the charts like her playing her daughter's character who was like 30 years younger than her on um on camera and apparently he's all tuned in to watch it and the reason that she says that she she played her her daughter's part on the on the soap opera was that she didn't want Christina to get written out of the of the show because that could have been a, a potential like thing that would have happened with her daughter being sick and in hospital. Um, so in 1974, she withdrew from the public because there was an unflattering photo of her in the paper. 
And she just was kind of like, this is how people see me. I don't really want to be like portrayed this way. And so she withdrew and then she became more and more reclusive until she died in 1977. And so the actually after the end of her life, it's quite interesting because her, her adopted daughter, Christina, wrote a memoir called Mummy Dearest. And this is like the really super campy um, Faye Dunaway film was based on the memoir Mummy Dearest. So she had adopted four children, Christina and Christopher were the first two. And then later she adopted two other children. And when Joan Crawford died, she left money to the younger two and not to Christina and Christopher. And it was kind of like for reasons that they well know. And so her daughter wrote this scathing memoir about how horrible of a mother Joan Crawford was. Yeah, so it's really interesting. And then the and then the film with Faye Dunaway was released. So some of the things that Christina wrote in the Mummy Dearest Memoir, it was published in 1978. So just a year after Joan died, she said that Joan was like very strict and that she was abusive, like both emotionally and physically, and that she chose fame and career over being a mother. And then, um, but a lot of people have disputed Christina's claims, like all of, like a lot of Joan's friends. So some of the research said like people like Van Johnson, Catherine Hepburn, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., which was Joan Crawford's first husband. They've denied the abuse and denounced the book. Um, and then a couple of people had witnessed the, the discipline. So June Allison was one of them saying that they thought that Joan was quite strict. They thought that she was too strict. And then June Allison herself said in her autobiography, she witnessed Joan put Christina in a timeout and didn't let a friend go to a friend's birthday party as a punishment, which is, that's like pretty strict, but they're not saying that they witnessed any outright abuse. So Mummy Dearest was made into the film Mummy Dearest in 1981, starring Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford. And this movie, I think... At the time, they thought they were making this groundbreaking, super serious deep dive into like the underbelly of Hollywood and old Hollywood. But it's just, it's just not that. Like it's just, it just became very, um, very campy, very like over the top. And you, everyone knows like the, the no wire hangers uh, quote. And it's really interesting. So it's actually considered an awful film like people hated it when it came out they were like this is absolute garbage it was so so one of these things say one of the reviews I'm looking at says I can't imagine who would want to subject themselves to this movie it's unremittingly depressive not to any purpose of drama or entertainment it left me feeling creepy (laughs) people say you're strange and like that like it was just really, I, I just think they thought that they were doing something that was not happening. And then there's a bit of, um, and now obviously in retrospective, like a bit of the criticism has changed. It's, it still has awful ratings. Like Rotten Tomatoes rating for it is 47%. Um, but it's saying that it's just still very campy. It's um, 
it says the movie is too campy and undisciplined to transcend guilty pleasure. I like it. I just think it's absolutely insane. I think she, like Faye Dunaway, is insane. I, that's definitely something I would recommend watching. It just knowing the background, like it is, it is set. Like I don't really believe my personal opinion. You know what goes on, but I don't know. I just think it's Mummy Dearest is a strange part of. Joan Crawford's history. I wanted to talk a little bit about Joan Crawford's look. So she was definitely one of the, Joan was really one of the first products of the studio system where they remade her look, her name, her backstory, and she really embraced becoming Joan Crawford. She was not one of the people that kind of fought against who the studio was trying to make her become. She really embraced becoming Joan Crawford. So I looked a little bit into her look, especially her beauty look, because it's just so iconic. And I just think when people think about Joan Crawford, they think about those bold brows, those big overlined red lips. And it's just a really good snapshot of how the studio created these stars from, you know, your average, your average gal. So It says, in the 1930s, she was tired of playing fun-loving flappers and she wanted to change her image. So this was like she was the quintessential flapper girl of the 20s. She wanted to change her image because she had the contract with MGM and she wanted to kind of modernise her look because the flapper look in the 1930s, they were really stepping away from that. Skirts were lengthening, hair wasn't as, like, fluffy, even, like, the eyebrows were changing, Seriously, like old Hollywood eyebrows are so wild. So she used to have thin lips. So in the 1930s, she decided she wanted big lips. She actually worked with Max Factor and he overdrew her upper and lower lips and it was just what she wanted. Um, The Crawford look was her trademark. He called it the smear, so the lips, the smear of her lips. And it became known as Hunter's Bow Lips. And then it's really interesting. So she's really known for those overdrawing, those big, bold lips. The one other actress I can think of that I would agree is probably Lucille Ball. She definitely overdrew her top, her top um, bow. And it's, it's really an iconic look. It says here that I'm um, in the research that Crawford is often credited as helping to remove America's prejudice against lipstick. So a lot of, a lot of um, wearing makeup was frowned upon and even like fixing your lipstick in public was considered not classy and people, women would have to go to the bathroom to do it. Even like considered wearing red lipstick was like, you know, you're like a little bit of a hoe. <laughs> and so she really f- changed the prejudices against that, which is awesome because we all love a bit of lippy in our life. So it says here, like the transcending makeup stars that Crawford initiated in the early 1930s, Replace the prettiness of the 20s with a more sculptured, mature look. So in the 1930s, Joan was in her, well, depending on her birthday, Joan was in like her tw- like mid-20s to like 30s. And I think we all go through that. Like we want to, you know, become more mature, mature make our look more grown up. So she says, everyone imitated my fuller mouth, my darker brows, but I wouldn't copy anyone. If I can't be me, I don't want to be anybody. And I was born that way. So that's one of her quotes that she said about her own beauty look. I had a look through some of the trivia on IMDb. I don't know how, like, 
proper the sources are. So this this story on here is wild. It says, so she adopted another son in the early 1940s, but during a magazine interview, she disclosed the location of his birth and his biological mother showed up at her Brentwood home wanting the baby back. Thinking that a fight would hurt the well-being of the child, Joan gave him back to his mother, who then sold him to another family. <laughs> That's so wild. It's it's really interesting that all the adoption things because she adopted all four. She didn't have a natural any natural births, but as a, like a single woman, it was really she couldn't adopt through like normal channels because she wasn't considered like a fit parent being a single parent. So she had to like go through all these back channels to adopt her children, and that's just like one of the wild stories about this like underground baby ring of the 40s i thought i would finish up just by recommending some of the joan crawford movies that i like um so one of the first ones i love is the women it's a really interesting movie it came out in 1939 and it's directed by george kukul and there is a remake of it like i think it's like a 2008 remake remake but this one the 1939 one with joan crawford it's interesting because it's got an all-women cast. Like, like you don't even see a man in it. Um, so, you know, go go, ladies in 1939. It's about Norma Shearer is the protagonist of the film. And it is about she has a husband named Stephen and he is seeing someone else. It's this perfume counter girl, which is obviously played by Drew Crawford. And it's just about... Um, the breakdown of that relationship with like Joan Crawford being the other woman. And I would recommend that. I really love it. It's got Rosalind Russell in it. She's a little bit, I find her a bit annoying in this movie, but I love Rosalind Russell. The clothes are fantastic. Joan Fontaine is gorgeous. Joan Crawford is just such a bitch. I love it. And it's like, they have all these scenes where they're in this like 1930s beauty parlor. And it's just so strange watching like 1930s ladies working out on an exercise bike, doing calisthenics, getting their nails done. I just love it. I just love the, the inside of that kind of part of ladies in the 1930s. So that would definitely be my first recommendation, the women. My second recommendation is definitely Mildred Pierce. This came out in 1945. It's the one I talked about earlier where Joan won her Oscar for it. And it's directed by Michael Cotiz. I love this movie. It was based on the book. And if you watch the Mildred Pierce miniseries that has Kate Winslet and Guy Pierce in it today, that is more kind of faithful to the book. That's a good that's a good show too. You should watch that as well. But this one is fantastic. Like the clothing, she's just her cheekbones. Oh, I love it. It's very like dramatic, dark. It, you can see why she won the Oscar for it because she's just incredible in it. It's more of a drama, so the women is more of like a light-hearted comedy. This one is definitely a drama, but it just really shows her stardom. And I think if you're going to watch a Joan Crawford movie, Mildred Pierce is definitely one to watch. I'm looking through the list of her movies on Wikipedia, and I'm just going to be such a basic bitch and recommend as my third recommendation, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. <laughs> Still so lame. I um love this movie as well. And also, like I mentioned Feud before. If you're going to watch Feud, you need to watch this as well. So this was directed by Robert Aldrich, and it came out in 1962. I think I said that before. Oh, look at that memory. Need to go on Jeopardy. And it's got Betty Davis in it. It's completely um iconic, so campy. And it's also 
the background behind her making it and her feud with Betty Davis gives it that little extra something something when you're watching it. It's a little bit of like a 1960s B horror. Betty Davis is absolutely crazy in it. She freaks me out. I love it. So that's my third recommendation. I really hope that you liked the first episode of my podcast, Old Hollywood New Obsession. Um, I probably didn't get all of exact facts correct. I tried my best. This is just the first one. I'm just doing it for a bit of fun. I hope you liked it. I'm going to try and make one of these once a, once a month, once a fortnight, depending on how hard it is to make more than one. Um, yeah, so I hope you liked it and I will see you next time. Bye.